Voyage. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters. Both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. January 16, 1978. My first morning on death row in the basement of a building cell block four behind the prison walls in Florence, Arizona. Many of the windows in the basement are broken out, so whatever the temperature is outside at night, it's the same inside our cells. We can bend down and see the sky outside through a small sliver of a window. Neither James Robeson nor myself had seen the sky for a year while in Maricopa County Jail. Our cells were six foot wide and nine foot long with one man per cell. I could touch the sides of the wall by myself by extending both hands in opposite directions, touching the side of the walls with my fingertips. It did not take long to realize there was no heat in the basement at all in 1978, because if they pushed enough heat down to the basement, the men on the top floors would burn up. I guess they figured we were going to be killed anyway. Why worry about us? I got one blanket, which is all they would allow each inmate. Two sheets, one for the mattress and one for the bed. I kept all the newspapers I could find to put between the first sheet and the top blanket because it was 17 degrees outside by January and 17 degrees inside ourselves. I left a cup of water on my top bunk one night and when I woke up the next morning it was frozen. The summer months were just the opposite except they had coolers that worked pretty well until the months of July and August. We were each allowed a shower three times a week for 15 minutes. We then had to return to our cells, except we were allowed to go back next to the gas chamber in a fenced-in area, which was about 15 foot wide and 30 foot long for one hour, three times a week. I had no idea what lay ahead of me. I only knew I was on death row for something I had not done. Voyage Media presents The Patsy. Well, the first time I ever drove to see my dad on death row at the Arizona State Prison in Florence, Arizona, it was a long drive down there. Um, I was always by myself. Uh, and you had to be approved to get in. Each person had to be approved to get in, and there was only so many on the, I guess, that he could have on his um, list to visit him. I always remember sitting there thinking, wow, um, you know, this was uh, quite an experience for, a, I think I was 17 then, 
um, because uh, I'd never even been to my high school or any detention. I've, I had never even been to the principal's office, so now I'm at a state prison, and um, it took a little uh, courage, if nothing else, to go there and sit down in that room, and before they brought my dad out, you'd look around, and there was... Um, you know, people in there, and I'd always used to think, boy, I wonder what they did. That This is scary. So, But then my dad would come in, and he always had a smile on his face. And, um, you know, it could be the worst nightmare for me, but when I left that prison, my dad always made me feel better. I don't know how he did it. You know, he was in there, and I was out here. But he had a way of um, calming and, you know, making you just feel okay. So, uh that was kind of a lot of years of, um, of visiting, but death row was unforgettable. I just couldn't understand how he got in prison and who put him there, on what, on what grounds. And no one could ever tell me. No one. Not even the Attorney General. Isn't that bizarre? Although Eileen Roberts worked for the man who had given the police the fake story implicating Max Dunlap, she wasn't the only person in the community who couldn't understand why he was fingered for this heinous crime. On November 21st, 1978, 300 of Phoenix's most well-heeled residents formed a committee to come to Max's defense. They pooled their resources, some even taking second mortgages on their houses, to hire a private investigator to find anything that would exonerate their friend, or at the very least, get him off death row. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Lake Headley. He's a private investigator from Los Angeles. I've talked to him about our needs on the Dunlap matter, and having seen his resume, I believe he fits the bill. I'm going to quote from the prosecutor of the Charles Manson case, Mr. Vincent Bugliosi, who called Headley the best private investigator on earth. So with all that, Mr. Headley, the floor is yours. Well, I know you need a thorough investigation that might unearth exculpatory new evidence to persuade an appeals court to grant a new trial. We're starting very late in the game, and I don't even know the salient facts of the case yet but I will. One person who was in that crowd was investigative journalist Don Devereaux. Lake Headley was a private investigator based in Las Vegas back in uh, 1979 uh, when I went to work for the Scottsdale Progress. I first met Lake without having any idea who the hell he was uh, at a press conference he was holding and Lake was talking about something he had found and going through uh, belatedly uh, some of the uh, discovery in the earlier Dunlap trial that had not been released in time had been given to the judge to decide whether it was exculpatory or not and had sort of stayed buried for a long time. And Lake had discovered in the process uh, several reports indicating that attorney Neil Roberts had reported three different vehicles stolen from his parking lot uh, at his law office on the day of the Bulls homicide. And Lake was kind of uh, making a point of that. that it didn't seem to him to be a coincidence that Neil Roberts would have three vehicles stolen the day that Don Bowles was killed, and there might not be a connection between some of that and some of that. And uh, Nake was getting roundly pissed on by the other journalists in the room. Uh, 
how dare he, what kind of a man was he, that he could be trying to help someone who had killed our colleague Don Bowles. What kind of a guy are you? Um, they were really dumping on him pretty seriously, and they stood up in the back of the room where I happened to be and uh, criticized them for dumping on him and said we should hear the man out. Let's hear what he has to say. I was not roundly applauded for taking that position, uh, but it happened that the woman standing next to me in the back of the, of the room was Molly Ivins, a reporter for the New York Times at that time, uh, whom I knew of but didn't know that was her. And uh, Molly appreciated what I had had to say, and we went out for drinks later and became friends for the rest of her life, as a matter of fact, as a consequence of that. Uh, Lake and I began hooking up um, uh, thereafter. Uh, he was curious to know what I was working on, and I was curious to know what he had found. And we had one thing in common. We were increasingly suspicious of the, uh, the whole Bulls case handling. And I delighted in having somebody in town who uh, was going in sympathetic to what I was trying to do with the progress. We worked together quite well. Uh, he was living at the Westward Ho Hotel in a, a suite on one of the upper floors at the time, paid for by the Dunlap Defense Committee with uh, a young female friend of his named Terry Yoder, a uh, charming young woman, attractive, from Vegas also, about half Lake's age, um, the kind of young woman that any one of us would have enjoyed having as a companion working on any investigation, actually. Um, but Lake and I palled around a great deal from that point forward as long as he was in town. Um, and he did some good, good stuff on occasion. He also did some stuff that didn't pan out. But just his moral support was extremely important to me at the time because I wasn't getting much moral support from any other quarter in town. And he was someone I could go out with as a, as a twosome, sometimes for safety's sake. Uh, we, could, we could do things together that might have been more dangerous to do on our own, either one of us. And so we shared sources, we shared contacts, we shared information. But there was another convicted conspirator on death row with Max Dunlap, James Robinson, also known as The Plumber, because, well, that was his actual job. Ironically, Robison confirmed to Headley when he first interviewed him that he had never met Max Dunlap until the day they were both arraigned. Strange, given that these two men had supposedly masterminded the Bulls' assassination. In his book, Loud and Clear, co-written with William Hoffman, Lake Headley recounts his initial visit with James Robison on death row. On April 26th, 1978, I drove to the state prison in Florence, Arizona for my first interview with James Robeson on death row. When he lumbered into the room, I could see why he was chosen to be one of the fall guys. At five foot seven, 220 pounds, his forehead had a big dent in it and a scar from what must have been a hatchet. He looked the part. Unlike Max Dunlap, who had many friends and a loving family to support him, Robeson had nobody. I asked him, Jim, I looked at all the discovery, and it seems like you know more about Adamson than anyone else. Can you tell me about him? Robeson looked me straight in the eye and said, John Adamson is the smartest SOB I ever met. I asked him why. He said that he got everything he wanted, didn't he? He got the cops back on his story. He got the prosecutors cutting him a deal made in heaven after he admitted to planning the bomb. And look who's on death row. Max Dunlap and me, instead of Adamson, who should be here. I'd call that a smart SOB. 
For the next two hours, Robeson gave me chapter and verse on Adamson, Neil Roberts, and the mob connections to Arizona dog racing and politics. I figured Robeson was clued in on a lot, but he was stubborn, street-level guy whose elevator only went up to the 10th floor. Certainly not to the penthouse. In the following clip made decades ago, James Robison discusses his relationships with John Adamson and Max Dunlap. Oh, Jim Robison. Uh, let me ask you a few questions, Jim, and, and you can expand on it as you feel appropriate, but uh, I want to find out certain things about what took place uh, back in 1976 and before. Uh, before June 2nd, uh, 1976, uh, did you know Neil Roberts? No. Did you know of Neil Roberts? No. Before June 2nd, 1976, did you know Max Dunlap? No. Did you know of him? That is, had anybody talked about Max Dunlap? No, I didn't know who he was. And <clears throat> before June 2nd, 1976, you did know, as I understand it, you did know John Adamson. Yeah, I, I knew John. Well, he was he used to hang out at the Ivanhoe and he was considered the town drunk more or less. He uh, he consumed by his own admission probably a, a fifth of alcohol a day. In fact, uh, I told him he should write a book from a, a fifth a fifth during the day era. Let's see, a, f a fifth during the day to a fifth, or taking a fifth in the courtroom is what he was doing. Uh, in, in, this is a pretty direct question, but <clears throat> I, I want to ask you right now, did you participate in any way in the Bowles bombing? No. Um, prior to June 2nd, 1976, <coughs> excuse me, uh, did Adamson mention anything about what might happen to Don Bowles? No, uh-uh. He, um, he had made a bomb and, and he showed it to me, but uh, it was supposed to be for um, uh, another person, and he said he was just going to blow up the guy's car. Well, at, at any time that you were in prison, uh, did you have the opportunity offered to you by the prosecuting attorney, which would have been the attorney general's office or the police department, uh, to testify against Max, and if you did so, you would have an, an easier time. Oh, all the time. I knew any time that I wanted to do what Adamson did, that um, I could have my situation mitigated to a certain extent. I don't know exactly what, but uh, I'm sure it would have been better than what I had. I wouldn't do it because they wanted me to lie. They thought I would do it. They, they figured if they could take a, a, a person like Adamson and turn him 180 degrees, they could do that to me and I wouldn't let them do it. Did you ever hear did you ever hear anything from Adamson or anybody else that Max was set up in this case? No, except, well, uh, Adamson admitted to me that, uh, you know, one time we were in the county jail and they left us in a room together and I asked Adamson, I said, what are you doing? 
and he says, hey, I'm making a plea bargain. And uh, I says, well, you know, why bring me and Max into it? He says, well, that's what they wanted. And they wanted people to prosecute. And, and that's all there was to that. Headley was skeptical of the conclusions drawn by the Arizona Project, a team of 36 investigative reporters who had descended upon Phoenix to further the work of their fallen colleague. Their work had been memorialized in a book written by one of the team, The Arizona Project. The final passage read, The media had done their job. Arizona's ills had been exposed, and justice, though not yet complete, was slowly being done. It was the future. That was the story now. Lake Headley, as he recounts in his book, had a visceral response. Done their job. I wanted to vomit. On the heels of the prison interview with Robison, Headley started down the path of talking to Betty Funk Richardson, ex-wife of Bradley Funk, he of the corrupt dog track syndicate. Funk and Betty were in court wrangling over child support, which gave her access to his financials. She turned that information over to Bowles, who was not just using her for information on Brad Funk, but according to persistent rumors, was also having an affair with Betty Funk. Bowles' relationship with Betty was well known, and Brad Funk hated Bowles for it. Betty told one of the Phoenix Police Department detectives that Don Bowles showed up at one of her child support hearings, much to the dismay of her ex. Don just sat there and glared at Brad. And I loved him for it. I think Don's been kicked around and around and made to look ridiculous for years. And finally, when they couldn't shake him, they tried to destroy him. I hope Don becomes a Jesus Christ and you all rally around the poor guy and recognize what he's been fighting alone. Betty Funk had her, la Betty Richardson later, Betty Funk initially, had her last major court hearing involving Bradley before Don was killed in 76. Under the terms of her divorce decree from Bradley, she had the right to go back to court periodically to adjust child support payments based on how much money he was making. So she went back to court every couple of years, it seemed, to, to increase the, the uh, money that she was getting to help support their daughter. And uh, Don was taking advantage of that, if you will, in a very close friendship with hers, um, to ask her for the inclusion of things he was interested in learning in her motion for production of documents in those child support hearings in court. And she would file that in her request through her attorney. And Don was able to flush out all kinds of information on Brad Funk personally and the Funks in general and the dog tracks, financial arrangements, that uh, he probably couldn't have acquired any other way. But uh, Betty divorced him, and she had a hard time in the divorce because Bradley was a big shot in town, and she wasn't. And so he was well represented by lawyers, overpowering in many respects whatever she could muster in court. And Don kind of helped her through that divorce process as a, a new friend uh, to, to give her moral support and lead her through it. And, you know, I can't blame him for having a fling with her. But they had a very close relationship uh, to the point that when uh, uh, Don was attacked in 76, she came over and offered herself up as kind of a shield uh, in his hospital room if they needed. She was convinced they were going to finish Don off in the hospital and told the cops that and, and uh, came over and offered herself up to stand in the doorway if necessary. To, they, Brad might kill Don, but he would never kill the mother of his child kind of thing. And uh, she could protect Don at that point. 
made it very clear she thought Brad had done it. Uh, but they had started around again, she and Don, beginning in the early months of 1976 on preparation for another court session on the child support question later in 1976. And this time she was going to be adding, in addition to the increase in child support, accusations that Bradley had taken actions to, in her words, terrorize her family in California, throwing paint on the car, paint on the house, killing pets in the yard, uh, a lot of acts of terrorism that had happened around her house, probably not conducted by Bradley personally, but in her mind, conducted by somebody Bradley had arranged to do it. I began to understand by the latter part of 1979 that I was getting pretty substantial crossways of the people that either had been involved directly in killing Don Bowles or were part of the coterie of folks in town trying to protect that uh, point of view. Uh, and I never received any, any death threats directly. Uh, I had uh, verbal threats and I had one guy accost me physically in a bar one night and had a little bit of a scuffle and we tussled for a while. Um, and I had some threats over the phone, including threats from the Phoenix Police Department on one occasion. A sergeant called me up and, and told me he knew where I lived. <laughs> and that night, uh, about midnight, one o'clock in the morning when I was in bed, uh, all of a sudden my bedroom lit up like a Polish wedding on Easter um, with a spotlight of a police car shining in my bedroom window from the street out front. I had one break-in attempt at my house. I don't know what purposes it was for, but someone tried to break through the front door one night. We caught them in the process and they ran away. Uh, and finally, one night, uh, one night when Lake also had a break-in where he was living and lost some audio tapes he had in his storage locker. I was out grocery shopping and I came home with a couple bags of groceries in my arm and having parked my car under a uh, kind of a covered place back of the apartment building in the alley. And as I was walking down the alley toward the walkway toward the front, uh, there was a uh, pickup truck uh, with those kind of two sets of headlights, a couple lights on top of the truck and a couple lights, the regular headlights. And as I got fairly close to the truck, all four lights went on, lighting me up pretty clearly. And the truck peeled rubber and came after me. And uh, I think it was more designed to scare me than to kill me because uh, I dove out of the way without you know, any real problems. I spilled some groceries, but I managed to dive out of the way without it getting that close to me. So I took it more as an intimidation tactic than a, than a threat. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Headley needed some outside help. 
He was not licensed as a private investigator in Arizona and could not legally operate in the state. But Lake could continue investigating if he were doing so as a journalist under the auspices of a credible publication. As he describes in his book, Loud and Clear. I had come up with a workaround or I'd be the next one ending up in Arizona jail. And I had another problem that needed solving, money. The stipend the Dunlap committee was paying me didn't cover my expenses, of which there were many. I was in the hole on the case, but I wanted to stick with it. So on December 23rd, I flew to Chicago and paid a visit to the Playboy building on North Michigan Avenue. I'd had some success with one of their senior editors when I covered the investigation into the Wounded Knee occupation in 73. These days, he was on the board of the Playboy Foundation. He was my way into the head honcho, Arthur Kretschmer. I sat down with Kretschmer and I told them what I told those reporters, only this time he was listening. What's Playboy's angle on the story? He asked. There's no sex, no drugs, and we don't usually get involved in murder cases. How's this one different? I said, sir, Playboy has always opposed the death penalty, and in my opinion, Dunlap and Robeson are the best arguments against that you'll ever find. I've interviewed them several times and I believe they're innocent. Kretschmer leaned forward and I told them everything, including my legal predicament, which is why I needed the cover of a legitimate news organization. Kretschmer's face screwed up as he said, you mean the authorities are more concerned with the status of your license than what you found out? Sure looks that way. Kretschmer stood up, shook my hand and said, you're working for us. Sounds like you're onto a good story that needs telling and I wish you luck. Headley also contacted the New York Times, which sent reporter Molly Ivins to Arizona to investigate and bring a national profile to the case. Ivins gave this interview about the case before she died. Uh, my recollection is that I was initially contacted by the head of an organization called Friends of Max Dunlap. They had hired a private detective named Lake Headley, the late Lake Headley. Um, and had come up with it, what they thought was some evidence that exonerated uh, Max Dunlap in the killing of Bolts. And my first reaction was that um, this sounded highly unlikely to me. I had not been out west at the time of Bolts' killing, but it was, of course, remembered vividly by all people in the newspaper business. And as you may know, it was the beginning of the investigative reporters and editors uh, project. The IRE is now a well-established nationwide organization, but it began in response to the Bowles killing when a number of uh, very fine investigative reporters and editors from around the country uh, went to Arizona as a reaction to Bowles killing with the intention of carrying on his work. And they did a uh, produced a book about Arizona investigating, uh, as I recall, both political corruption and uh, some mafia activity there. And what I had not realized until I looked at the case myself was the one thing they never looked at was who killed Don Bowles. They left that up to uh, local law enforcement people. None of them ever followed up on that. And I, that was a surprise to me. I had not realized that. Lake Headley's second press conference in Phoenix was nothing less than a bombshell. Good afternoon, members of the press. I've invited you here to see and learn about new information uncovered in the Bulls investigation. The two key people we want to talk about are Keith Nation and Michael Jodon. You'll learn from Keith Nation's sworn affidavit that Don Bowles, right up to the time the bomb exploded underneath him, 
maintained a keen interest in the Funk Empire's dog racing empire. Mr. Nation was one of the last people to speak to Bulls and their conversation centered on the Funks and Emprise. I also want to bring to your attention the sworn affidavits of Michael Jodon, a police informant. I'd appreciate in particular your noting how Jodon swears that three times before the bombing, he overheard talk about a plot to kill Don Bowles. Jodon apprised Scottsdale Police Sergeant Robert Powers of the situation. Powers did nothing. After Don Bowles was assassinated, Jodon made additional attempts to convey his knowledge of the murder plan to law enforcement agencies. Still no action. Jodon's sworn statements are here for you to take and study. All the information we have accumulated has been turned over to the Attorney General's office, but sad to say, I've detected little enthusiasm from that august law enforcement agency. After the press conference, reporter Marley Ivins wrote an expose that should have destroyed the current narrative on the Bowles case and laid the groundwork for an appeal. From Ivins' New York Times article, Mr. Joe Don's affidavits echoed charges made at the murder trial that a lawyer named Neil Roberts, since disbarred, arranged the murder of Don Bowles, a reporter for the Arizona Republic. The affidavits quote two sources as saying Mr. Roberts acted at the behest of a man indirectly tied to the Emprise Corporation of Buffalo, New York, which had been investigated by Mr. Bowles. In exchange for a pledge of immunity on charges of accessory after the fact, a transcript of the meeting shows Mr. Roberts gave the police what he called, quote, pure speculation about the case, end quote. Mr. Roberts' speculations, backed by the word of his friend, Mr. Adamson, became the basis of the prosecution's case. In all the years I visited my dad in prison, I never, my dad never complained and he never gave up hope. And he never felt sorry for himself. It was amazing to me. And it always makes me feel guilty to this day if I feel sorry for myself because I think of what he endured. But, um, you know, he would, uh, when I think when I went down to death row, um, Jimmy Robeson, who my dad never knew until he was arrested with him, um, I want to remember him going on a hunger strike. And, you know, I had been down to see my dad, and he had kind of told me about it. But he, I said, you know, my dad did not participate in the hunger strike because he just knew that he was not, he always knew he was not going to die for a crime he did not do because that's the faith my dad had, he was raised with. I remember writing as a kid, I sat in a park, I used to go to the park because I didn't have anyone that could understand what I was going through, so I used to go to the park um, by myself, I became an avid runner, <laughs> trying to run off, I guess, my grief, I don't know. And um, I would sit in the park and I would take <clears throat> letterhead and I would write, I remember writing a letter to Jimmy Robeson and begging him not to die um, because there was always hope, you know, that that would get overturned. And I remember I got a letter back from Jimmy that said, um, you know, he kind of wanted to die on his own terms, and he was not going to let them kill him in an electric chair. I just, ugh, it was awful. But when I would visit my dad, my dad assured me that he was not going to give up hope. So I guess I had that bright light. Um, and uh, 
I remember, like, for instance, um, I just wanted to read you a, a birthday card my dad sent me. And I have to, I really wanted, I guess, um, everyone to understand that <laughs> when your dad's on death row <clears throat> and you get a birthday card like this, it means a lot. Sorry. Um, he sends me this card. It's handwritten. And it says, happy birthday to my sweet little old Carrie Bear. My, my nickname was Bear. Um, I think this one, I have dozens of birthday cards from him, but this was my 16th birthday. And it said, um, things, things are, are very tight. tight and the money is and hard money to come by, hard. but we love you just as much. And as soon as things get straightened out, we'll get on with the car deal. So my dad had bought my sisters all new cars for their 16th birthday. And of course, he was in prison online. <laughs> so, which was not a big deal. But anyway, he was teasing me he would get me a car. And so it says, um... Carrie Bear, I hope you remember all of your life that you live your todays so your tomorrows will be sweet memories of each yesterday. You live each day right and full, and you will be a happy girl or wife all your life. It says, your loving father and mother, um, Max. And then he said, I'm having your mom enclose a $100 bill as your gift, <laughs> and, and uh, just for a little shopping. And I always treasured this card. I still have it. Um because that's the spirit my dad had. And like I said, no matter how bad things were, he always made you, he just, I mean, that's just how he was with everyone. He always was the bright light. Despite the exculpatory evidence uncovered by Lake Headley and Don Devereaux, and the national spotlight shined on it by New York Times reporter Molly Ivins, the prosecutors refused to reopen the case. The only hope the Dunlap family had was an appeal to the state Supreme Court to overturn the verdicts from the trial. It was a long shot, but it was all they had left. And time was running out. The Patsy is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced, reported, and written by Chris Leach and Adam Prince, and directed by Chris Leach. Executive produced by Nat Mundell, Karen Graham, Robert Midas, Caitlin Brown, and Dan Benamore. Edited, sound designed, and mixed by John Higgins, with additional editing by Nick Masidi and Andres Coca. Narrated by Joshua Molina. Cast credits available in the show notes. Original music by Durlis Gonzalez. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening, and subscribe now for future episodes. When 27-year-old Gretchen Fleming leaves a West Virginia bar with a former police officer on a winter night in 2022, she's never seen again. Diligent investigators close in on an ex-cop with an unlikely story and an unsettling reputation in a recent episode of the Unsolved True Crime podcast, Last Seen Alive. Last Seen Alive is a true crime podcast researched, written, and hosted by crime analyst Leah Owens. Cases covered include disappearances, homicides, and suspicious deaths, all of them unsolved and all of them in need of tips from the public. Recognizing the right piece of information can sometimes be the difference between a cold case and resolution. 
Last Seen Alive exists to bring public awareness to cases that need it. Listen to Gretchen's story and more than 100 other gripping mysteries as told by a working crime analysis professional. Find Last Seen Alive wherever you listen to podcasts.